Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. If you would open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Before we begin, let's bow before our Lord together in prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, holy and reverend is your matchless name. And Father, we bow before you in awe and reverence. We come before your thrice holy presence carefully, reverently, daring only coming before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, pleading his obedience as our only righteousness, pleading his blood as the only way that our sin could be forgiven and washed away. And Lord, we also come thankfully. How thankful we are to, because of your mercy and your grace, be able to come before your throne in our Lord Jesus Christ and be accepted in him. And Father, we beg of you this morning that you would give us the spirit of worship, that you not let us just go through the, the habit and motion of religion, but Father, give us the heart of worship a spirit of worship that give us a heart that hungers and thirsts after Christ our righteousness, pants after him, seeks him. And Father, we pray that you'd reveal yourself to us. Reveal the glory, the redemptive glory of your Son to us this morning. Enable us to look into your word and see the, the sufficiency, to see that Christ is all that we need and cause us to run to him, rest in him, and hide in him. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to worship and pray that, that it would not just slip through our fingers, but that you would enable us this morning to, to truly worship, to be able, to, by thy spirit, to hear a word from thee. And what we pray for ourselves, we pray for our children's classes as they're going on right now. Father, we pray you'd bless our children, bless our teachers. Use this time, Father, to, to plant the seeds of faith in, in their heart. Be merciful to him, we pray. Father, for those who you brought into the time of trouble and trial, we pray for them. We pray you'd heal, that you'd deliver as soon as it could be thy will. Now, Father, all these things we ask in that name which is above every name, the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Now, we're going to be looking at the last verses of Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. I want to read to you at the beginning what John Gill wrote of these verses. He said, there are many articles of faith contained in this passage. And he's right. There are many articles of faith contained in this passage. And the reason for that is the verses we're going to look at this morning spend all of their time describing Christ our Savior. You know, we talk about the, our articles of faith. Our articles of faith are not a, a list of statements written down upon a piece of paper. You know, I, I knew a, a man one time, he was a pastor, and, and uh, he was trying to spend his time revising the church's articles of faith so that he could preach something different. And I told him that's a waste of time. <laughs> Just preach the scriptures. Just preach Christ. Our faith is in person. Our faith is not in a list of religious statements that we took the time to write down on a piece of paper, our articles of faith are descriptions of Christ the Savior because all of our faith is in him. He's the object of our faith. 
And in our text, the Apostle Paul describes our Savior as the head of the church. And that's what I've titled the lesson this morning, the head of the church. Christ is the head, and his elect people are called his body. You know, a head has to have a body, doesn't it? Well, Christ is our head. And in these verses this morning, there are three blessings that I see that come to God's people since Christ is our head. And the first one is this, since Christ is our head, he's our life. In verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is talking about the things that he prayed for. He wants these Ephesian believers to know. In verse 19 he says, I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now our Lord Jesus Christ died for the sin of his people. He was crucified, he suffered, he gave up the ghost, and he died. And we know his sacrifice was successful. The sacrifice of Christ put away all the sin of his people, washed away all of their sin, made them white as snow. His sacrifice put away all of the sin of his people that had been charged to him. And we know that so. We know the sin of God's elect is gone. Because after he lay in the tomb, dead for three days, the father raised him from the dead. And the only reason he would have raised him from the dead is because the sin of God's people had been put away by the sacrifice of Christ. Where there is no sin, there can't be death. Christ put away the sin that had been charged to him. The father raised him from the dead as the proof positive. His sacrifice justified all of his people. Now we talk often, probably every time we meet together, we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In some way, you know, we talk about that because that's the very foundation of the gospel, isn't it? We hear that often. But I want you to think about this for, for a minute. The body of our Lord Jesus lay in that tomb, wrapped in those burial wrappings, completely lifeless for three days. His body never moved. His heart never beat. His lungs never drew a breath. He was dead. His body was dead. Because that's what sin, that's what God's justice demands for sin. There must be death. The body of our Savior was dead for three days. And then he arose from the grave. Now you think of the power that it took for that lifeless body to live. You think of that power to bring him back to life. And that's what God did by his power. He took a body, been dead for three days, and raised him from the dead. And since sin is gone, our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead never to die again. Sin can never touch him ever again. Death can't touch him ever again. And death can never harm his people. He rose from the dead. Now that's the power of God. Only God has that kind of power to take a dead body and make it live again. And that's power, I mean, we can kind of think about it, but we just can't imagine and understand the true depth of that power because we've never seen anything like it. I mean, the power that it took for God, the Father, to raise His Son from the dead. Now, that's good doctrine. We'd write that down in an article of faith, wouldn't we? But here's the blessing for God's people in that power. You and I were born spiritually dead. And that's true of every son of Adam, 
believer and unbeliever alike, all of God's elect were born dead in sin. God's elect born dead in sin just like every other son of Adam. Now spiritually we're dead. We're alive physically, but spiritually we're dead. We can't move. Since we can't move, we can't move to do anything good, can we? Our minds are dead so that we can't understand any spiritual truth. Our hearts are dead so we can't love any spiritual truth. We can memorize it and spit it back out, but we can't love it because our heart's dead. Our eyes are blind. We can't see Christ. We can't see our need of Christ. We can't see ourselves as we are. We can't see ourselves in our sin. And we can't see that Christ is all we need. There's no breath of spiritual life in us. We're dead. Dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. We'll get into that in chapter 2 of Ephesians next week. But if the Father chose you before time began, He chose you to salvation, you can't stay in that dead spiritual condition, can you? If Christ came and died for you, you cannot stay in that dead spiritual condition. You must be given life. You must be given spiritual Eternal life. Now you imagine, and those of you who believe, you you remember when you were dead. You remember when the gospel didn't mean anything to you. You remember when you heard the gospel and didn't love it. And now you do. You know something happened. Think of the power that it takes to give a dead sinner life. To make a dead sinner hear the gospel and love it. Think of the power that it takes to take a, a dead sinner and give him life so he needs Christ. So he, now he can move. And what's the first thing he does? Flees to Christ. Runs to Christ, begging him for mercy. You think of the power that it takes to do that. Well, the power that God the Holy Spirit used to give life to the dead body of our Savior is the very same power that he uses to give his people spiritual life. And that's a power that only God has. Only I can preach to you. I can declare Christ to you. I can tell you run to Christ. I can tell you look to Christ. And I'm going to keep doing it till the cows come home. But you'll never do it as long as you're dead. But the Spirit gives you life. Oh, now you'll come to Christ. Now you see, don't you? You're going to spend lots of time saying, I just don't get it. <laughs> I just don't get it. I don't I'm sitting here, somebody's sitting in a row in front of me and they're just loving it. I can tell they love the, I can tell the gospel means so much to them. I can tell hearing of Christ just encourages their heart so much. I don't get it. You're going to spend a lot of time thinking I don't get it. But I'll tell you when you're going to get it. When the Holy Spirit gives you life. Only God can do it. And it's power. Second Corinthians 4 says that the power the Almighty God used to speak the world into existence. I mean, you think of the power that took to speak and this world to appear out of nothing. God uses that very same level of power to speak and give spiritual life in the hearts of his people. It's the, it's the creative power of God. Now, sometimes the scripture calls that spiritual resurrection. Sometimes the, the scripture refers to it as the new birth or regeneration. But whatever term you want to put to it, I'll tell you when that happens or why it happens. It happens because the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Him being raised from the dead, the resurrection of Christ is the begatting of life for his people. 
When he arose, all of his people arose in him. And that life in Christ, if Christ is our life now, that life can never be lost. Scripture calls God's elect believers, calls us the body of Christ. Well, this is what I know about the body. I'm no medical uh, genius by any stretch of the imagination, but I do know this. The body will live as long as the head lives. If the head dies, the brain dies, the body's going to die. But the body cannot die as long as the head's living. Christ is our head. He'll never die. He can never die again. Then his people can never die either. He is our life. Second, Christ is our king and our mediator. Verse 20 says, that, talking about his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. After he raised him from the dead, he set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now, when the Savior rose from the dead, he didn't wander around aimlessly because he didn't have anything to do. You know, he'd already come and he'd done what the Father gave him to do, and now there's nothing left for him to do. Now, he had come and accomplished the salvation of his people, hadn't he? He had come and he did everything the Father gave him to do, but there's still more for him to do. Scripture says he must reign. Now that he's risen from the dead, he must reign. So the Father exalted his Son, brought him back to heaven, brought him back to glory, and gave him the seat on the throne at the Father's right hand. Now the work of redemption is finished. The transaction is done. The price has been paid. And now our Savior sits on the throne ruling over everything for this purpose. To ensure the salvation and the glorification of his people. That's why he's ordering everything to happen the way that it happens. So that his people will ultimately be glorified together with him. Now that's a comforting thought for God's children. You think of the Savior. Now he, he's proved his love for his people at Herein is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. The Savior proved his love for his people by suffering and dying in their place. By taking their sin into his own body and putting it away by his suffering unto death. That one who loves you like that is the king of all creation. The one who's in control of everything. It's the Savior who's proved his love for me. You see, he decides. This one who loves me, he's in control. He decides how long I'm going to live and what I'm going to do in his service while I'm here. The sovereign king who loves me, he controls everything. He controls what can and can't touch me. Now, you know, I'm, I'm going to wash my hands and, and, you know, do things smart to avoid germs. But now listen. He's the one that controls what can and can't touch me. The sovereign, the one who loves me now, he controls what trials come my way. How deep the valley will be and how long it will last. He's in control of that. And the sovereign who loves me, he's not going to leave me alone. He's going to lead me and guide me every step of the way. I may not see the ditch, but he does. He's not going to let me fall away. And I'm telling you now, his power, you don't have to worry, well, has he got enough powers? I mean, am I sure he's really able to do this? His power is absolute. Look at verse 21. 
far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet. Our Savior is far above all principality. And that word principality, you know, I've read this so many times, I think, well, Paul's just kind of using different words to say the same thing, talk about the power of our Savior. But he's really not. I looked these words up, and this is the first time I've ever done that. This word principality, it means the power of choice. And it means the liberty to do as one pleases. Now, this is the problem with, with man's free will religion. You and I don't have the power of choice. You know, our, our, what, what we would choose is determined by our sin nature. We don't have the power to choose anything but sin. We don't have the power to choose anything but death. We don't have the power to choose anything but our own rags of self-righteousness. We don't have the liberty to do as one pleases. We don't have the liberty to decide whether or not I'm going to accept or reject Jesus. But our Savior has all power. He has the power of choice. And he chose the people that he would save. And he has the power to save them. Because he has the power, the liberty, to do as he pleases. And you know what's pleased him to do? One of the things that's pleased him to do is make you who believe his people. He has the liberty to do. It's pleased him. To make you his people. He's not going to let you go. He has all power. Nothing can take you out of his hand. Nothing. Nothing can ever take his people away from him. And then our Savior has all might. And that word means strength. And inherent power. See our Savior has a will. He has the ability the power to decide what he's going to do. And he has the might to make it happen. He is determined to save a people from, from their sins. And nobody has the power to take them out of his hand. And then Paul says, our Savior is far above all dominion. That word means lordship and government. Our Savior is the king of the kings of this earth. And he's the Lord over the lords of this earth. And that's talking about all authority in, in this world, if it's political rulers, if it's authority in the home, authority in the school, authority on the streets, wherever it is, everybody who rules, every, you know, from, from the dog catcher to the policeman to the mayor to the president, they all borrow their power from our king for a time. And they're serving. Whether you like them or not, whether you agree with them or not, they're there by God's authority, by God's appointment. God's put them there. That's exactly right. And they serve the Lord by serving society, doing for society what our Lord pleases. Not what they please. Not what they please. What God pleases. That's what they're doing. And when God's done with them, they're going to die and be no more. Somebody else take their place. But nobody's ever going to take the place of our king. He reigns forever and ever. He's far above all dominion. And then our Savior is far above every name that's named. And I tell you what that means. Our Savior is above everything and everyone. He's, he's over. He's the ruler over everyone, everywhere. Believer and unbeliever, everywhere. They're all under His rule. They're all being directed by His hand. See, each of us can only do what the sovereign allows us to do. 
what he has for us to do. That Christ is the sovereign king with all power. He's ruling for the good of his people. Get a hold of this now. This, this sovereign king, king over all, is also our mediator. The mediator is sitting at the right hand of the father. And the right hand means the place of acceptance. The father's brought our savior back and put him on his right hand to show I accept him. I accept everything he's done. I accept him. I accept his people. He's right beside the father in the place of acceptance and he's always heard. Always. Now since he has all power to do as he pleases, since he's already pleased the father, since he's already been accepted of the father, I can promise you this. He'll receive everything he asked of his father. Everything. Because everything he pleads for with his father is all based on his merit. It's all based on his blood, on his sacrifice, on his death for his people. Now you think about this. When he prays for you and says, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. The father always forgives. Always. Our Lord told Peter, Peter, Satan's desire to have you. He might sift you as wheat. I prayed for you. He didn't pray that Satan not be able to touch him, did he? He said, Peter, I pray for you that your faith fail not. And Peter was sifted, but his faith didn't fail, did he? I think about our Savior on the cross. One of the most amazing statements. Him suffering as no human being has ever suffered. Pray, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, Dan, I don't know exactly personally who he was praying for, but I know this. Whoever he prayed for, they're forgiven. They're forgiven. Some of those men there the day of Pentecost, from what Peter said, sounds to me like some of those men he was preaching to were at the cross. They were in the Pilate's judgment hall. They were in Caiaphas' house. Sounds to me like the Lord saved him by the preaching of Christ. Whoever it was he prayed for, now I'm telling you, they're forgiven. Aren't you thankful our Savior sits on the throne? He's king over all. Our Savior's the king. He's the potentate over every human being. But here's the third thing. Christ is the head of his people. Verse 23 says, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That word head means the supreme or the chief. Christ our Savior is the the chief, the supreme over all men. But now he's the king, the head of his people in a very different way than he's king over the unbeliever. The king will condemn the unbeliever in judgment, but he'll never condemn his people. See, he loves his people. He has saved his people by his grace. Because of his love for them, he paid the debt for them so they can never be condemned. But more than that, the Savior has a special, intimate relationship with his people because he's joined to them in the same way the head is joined to the body. Our Savior is not a king who never sees his people 
and doesn't know what's going on with them, and what's more, doesn't care what's going on with them. No, he sees. He sees. And he knows because everything's happening to us. He's sent to us. And he cares. He cares. I read a story somewhere about a, about a queen. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it makes a good story. She's in her castle, you know, and uh, everything's good for her. And she wanted to, to see how her subjects out in the country live. She'd been there in the town, you know, around the castle. But she wanted to see how the people lived out in the, in the country. And her advisors all told, don't do that. Don't go out there. It's, it's dangerous for you. To... That tipped her off. Why is it dangerous for me to go out and see my subjects? I mean, I care about them. So she, she insisted, and she went out into the country to see how people lived out in the country. And boy, she got a shock. She got a shock to see the poverty and the hunger and the struggle that her subjects were. It horrified her. Somebody under her dominion was suffering like this. It just, she was shocked. And I tell you why she was so surprised. She'd never seen them before. She'd never seen this before. She, just, she didn't know anything about the lives of these people. Not so with our king. Our king sees his people because he's always right with them. Always. He's joined to his people. The subjects of Christ the king are united to our king. And this union is very important. This union with Christ. The old timers called it a vital union. And they called it a vital union because it's so vital It's so important. There's no salvation without this union to Christ, being joined to Him. Now, Christ is our head. And this is what God's people have since Christ is our head. Humanly speaking, the head is the seat of power, isn't it? The the seat of understanding. It's, It's what controls the whole body. Well, you know, if we're the body of Christ, He's our power. He's our wisdom. He's our understanding. He's the one with the reasoning ability to reason what's best for us. He's our power. He's our understanding. The head controls the movement of the body. You know, if if I'm thirsty, I can reach out and take that glass and get a drink of water. That thought that's in my head was able to control my hand and take that and do it. Well, if something's wrong with the head, the body can't move, can it? Well, our head's perfect. And he controls all the movement of his, of his body. Moving them around in his surface. And since we're joined to Christ, God's people are identified as Christ. And the body is identified by the head, isn't it? Well, there sits Abby. I don't say, well, there's Abby's foot and there's Abby's leg and there's, there's Abby's shoulder. No, I say, I look at her face. Well, that's Abby. That's, I look at her face and know that. This is, I just, this is almost too wonderful to be able to say the body of Christ is identified as Christ himself because he, he's our head. Our personality, our identification all comes from him. <laughs> Since we're joined to Christ, this is our first point, we have the life of Christ. The body lives as long as the head lives. And since we're joined to Christ, 
God's people have the nature of Christ. The body has the nature, the personality of the head. Verse 23 says, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and in all. Christ fills his people. So we have his personality. We have his righteousness. Been made partakers of the divine nature. And since Christ is the head of the body, he loves every member of his body. Every member of his body is important to him. Now we think, oh, you know, there's people we know in the congregation, they don't do very much, and this one's quiet, or this one, you know, just scurries out and leaves right after the service is over. And, and, you know, they're not very important. Oh, yes, they are now. Oh, yes, they are. We're just sinners, and you think of your body. What happens when your little toenail starts hurting? Huh? The whole body is affected. We had a little mysterious um, plumbing issue yesterday underneath the sink. It started leaking. And I finally got it to work. Boy, I busted my knuckle on the back of that wall. You know, just, a, I mean, a teeny tiny scrape. <laughs> tell you, it hurts. I've been grabbing that thing, just putting stuff on it, trying to get, I mean, just the littlest thing. Boy, it's important to me. <laughs> if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you're, think of this now. I mean, get a hold of your seat. You're important to Him. He saved a number no man can number. His body is a number of people we can't count. And not one of them is unimportant to Him. Not one. Because he's the head who takes care of the body. If one part of the body's hurting, the other parts all go to help it, don't they? That's what we're to do for one another. And you know who directs us to do that for each other? The head. <laughs> the head. See, he showed us by example what to do for one another, didn't he? Love one another self-sacrificially as he sacrificed himself for us. That's what we're to do for one another because Christ is our head. Brother Gill was right, wasn't he? There's a lot of articles of faith here when you consider Christ our head. And aren't you thankful he's our head? All right, I hope the Lord will bless that to you.